Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. It's April 13, 2021, and our show is Mr. Trotter, the President and the Clan. We open with Mr. Freedom X by Miles Davis, off of the 1972 release On the Corner. Our guest today is Kerry Greenwich, author of Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotter, published by Livewrite. And she's assistant professor in the Department of Studies in Race, Colonialism, and Diaspora at Tufts University. Because I want to use this introduction to correct a gap in the show today, entirely of my doing, I'll have to rush a bit to tell you what you will hear about. Here we go. Booker T. Washington and Racial Conservatism, Washington's Tuskegee Institute and his machine politics, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Niagara Movement, the 1908 White Riot in Springfield, Illinois, the NAACP as the creation of white liberal philanthropists, Woodrow Wilson, supported by the black community, D.W. Griffith's anti-black propaganda film, Birth of a Nation, Woodrow Wilson, hated by the black community, militant radicals Marcus Garvey and Hubert Harrison, Cyril Briggs and the African Blood Brotherhood, the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. At or near the center of all these stands William Monroe Trotter, the most important black radical journalist and agitator you've never heard of, co-owner and editor of the Boston Guardian, from 1901 until his death by suicide in 1934. He was 62 years old. What you won't hear about in what follows is the Crumpacker Resolution, supported by Monroe Trotter. And at its heart is the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Here's a shortened version of the 14th Amendment's second section. Representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers. But when the right to vote at any election is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state or in any way abridged, except for participation in rebellion or other crime, the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in proportion. Recall from our show on Thaddeus Stevens, the radical Republican who pushed Lincoln to the left politically, that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are called the Reconstruction Amendments, as they abolished slavery and guaranteed equal protection of the laws and the right to vote in the wake of the U.S. Civil War. Ensuring that these amendments were in force was a major part of Monroe Trotter's purpose in life. Adopted in 1868, the 14th Amendment is still being flouted by white politicians today as state legislatures introduce legislation that restrict the opportunity to vote and disproportionately affect black citizens. The Crumpacker Resolution, named for a U.S. representative from Indiana, was introduced on January 3, 1901, in response to widespread white violence against black voters across the South in clear and constant violation of the 14th Amendment. The most glaring and terrible example is the 1898 coup in Wilmington, North Carolina, where a group of the state's white Southern Democrats and hundreds of white businessmen, all heavily armed, stoked mob violence in order to overturn the legitimately elected local fusionist biracial government. Black-owned property and businesses were destroyed, and as many as 300 people were killed, and an estimated 2,000 black residents were displaced. It's perhaps little in the way of justice, but the Crumpacker Resolution was meant to diminish the representative power of states perpetrating these acts. Monroe Trotter's Guardian promoted the resolution and sponsored a rally in support of it. The resolution was defeated handily in January and then again in June 1901, though this was a government firmly in the hands of the so-called Party of Lincoln. And now, Mr. Trotter, the President and the Klan. 
on Interchange on WFHB. Carrie, is it fair that I say your book uh, is about white supremacy in the guise of white liberalism a little bit, or and uh, I guess it's uh, attendant racial conservatism. Um, I know it's a biography of uh, William Monroe Trotter, and it's a biography of the period in a sense as well. But it's you know white liberalism and Trotter's response to racial conservatism, which really kind of are two sides of the same coin here, it seems like to me in a lot of ways. It's a big part of the book. The book is about the ways in which African-American people, and particularly an African-American person like Trotter, who was um, radically political to his core, how it is that they navigate um, racism in a place that proclaims that it is not racist. So how do you deal with people who have, uh, and I'm speaking specifically about white Protestant New Englanders at the turn of the century, who have a very long and proud and uh, true history of supporting anti-slavery and abolition and radical reconstruction in the South, but yet their racism was still as potent but in a different way as it was in other parts of the country. Um, and so how do you navigate that or how did Trotter navigate that as somebody who was um, politically radical um, when the default of many people who could have been supporters um, and who he admired, white, Protestant, Northern, liberal New Englanders, denied that their uh, complicity in the country's racial project generally. So it definitely a story about uh, the type of racism and racial decisions and white supremacy as it's enacted um, in New England, but then also how it's enacted in New England and how that became the basis for a lot of uh, white liberal or white progressive politics during the early 20th century. And the fact that Trotter insisted that that in and of itself was not enough, that there needed to be a radical a solution to America's racial problem. Trotter, as you note, is a, as the title of the book notes, right, is a, a, what we're calling a black radical. What makes someone a black radical at this period? Um, and, you know, it's he doesn't spring uh, whole cloth, uh, you know, into being a black radical, does he? Take some time to get there. Um, he does. I mean, what, what I say in the book is that he's part of this tradition that he identified and that his family identified as being, um, at the end of the Civil War, an entire generation of African-American people who had been enslaved and who had freed themselves, right? And that's kind of the first incarnation of a Black radical consciousness, both in um, the West and particularly in the United States. So those are people like David Walker and, you know, Mariah Stewart. And so he's the, as I, as I go through in the book, he's the son of a black woman who was in, who was born free in Charlottesville, Virginia, and whose relatives spent decades going over the border from Virginia into um, Ohio to rescue fugitive slaves, and who you know grew up carrying muskets over the <laughs> through the woods in Ohio to rescue fugitive slaves. And his father was enslaved in Mississippi, escaped um, to Cincinnati, and was involved in the black community there. That is, you know, sending their kids to school and. Um, opening their own businesses in the face of really entrenched white uh, violence underneath slavery. So for Trotter, he always envisioned that radicalism was Black people seizing the freedom that was denied to them and doing that by whatever means were in there at their hands at the moment. And so one of the things that happened was that because he was born after slavery ended in 1872, he was raised to believe that that type of activism could still um, exist. And yet he came of age at a time 
when he was constantly told that slavery was ended. And so what did it look like for black people to be that militant in terms of their activism? He was a radical in the sense that in this black radical tradition by the end of the 19th century, black communities themselves seizing freedom, if that meant through arms, if that meant through revolt, that that was the way to do it. And so um, by the time he published The Guardian in 1901, his radicalism really was rooted in, you know, black communities themselves have to use what little power they still have to claim what freedom and liberation looks like for them. And so in the North, that meant that in places where black people could still vote, they had to use and fight for the right to vote and they had to vote in their best interests, um, racial interests and not be sort of wedded to either political party. And in the South, that meant that they had to uh, fight against horrendous racial violence and uh, segregation in any way that they could. And if they couldn't do it in the South, they needed to migrate out of the South. And so um, those sentiments themselves were not statements or ideas that were part of the rhetoric of a Booker T. Washington or W.E.B. Du Bois, right? Neither of those two men would have said that, although Du Bois came around to it later, you know, definitely Washington wouldn't have. And so for average Black people, um, The Guardian became something that they saw an alternative to the racial and political rhetoric that occurred at the time. You mentioned, obviously, two other major figures, and two figures I assume most people will know about or have heard of, right? Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, um, two men who are generally framed together uh, as one standing on one side of a line and the other standing on another. And, you know, Du Bois being in the ascendant for a long time now, I suppose, um, and Booker T. Washington having to deal with history's judgment on him, but at the same time having to deal with that judgment handed down to him by uh, Monroe Trotter and many other people at the time also. Um, so let's let's do a little bit on Booker T. Washington, if you don't mind. Booker T. Washington is somebody who died in 1915, born in 1856. He, he was singularly the most powerful and most famous formerly enslaved person um, in the country after the death of Frederick Douglass. So Frederick Douglass died in 1895. Three months later, Booker T. Washington gave his famous uh, what's called the Atlanta Compromise speech in which he spoke before something called the Atlanta Cotton States Exposition, which was this nationwide conference that was supposed to bring business and capital from the North into the South 30 years after, after slavery ended. And so he was the only Black person asked to speak. The event was segregated and was sponsored by Southern white segregationists and Northern white uh, business people. And so Booker T. Washington being hailed by the press, the white press primarily, um, as like this new voice of a generation, because in that speech, he basically called for black people to put down their buckets where they were to basically forsake political agitation across the South in exchange for industrial education and making themselves useful to the South. Um, and this became a wildly popular idea. It was a wildly popular, not just he didn't invent the idea. He actually um, was amongst many um, industrialists of the time who believed in the notion that basically the cure for the country's ills was that black people need to stop uh, protesting. Reconstruction had failed. This was the rhetoric of the time. And therefore, what black people needed was to um, have education and uh, be patient. And the South eventually would give them the rights that um, were enshrined in the Constitution. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is about William Monroe Trotter, owner and editor of the Boston Guardian from 1901 to 1934, and a radical, race-first political agitator. Kerry Greenwich has been discussing Booker T. Washington and the idea of racial conservatism as Monroe Trotter's principal antagonist.
And the tragedy, I think, is that Booker T. Washington was not somebody who himself was an activist, right? He was an educator. He was very, very skillful at raising money for the Tuskegee Institute. And he was a negotiator between very, very virulently violent white supremacists in the South and very, very um, equally as virulently racist white people in the North, but people who were putting money into the South to rebuild its economy. And so that's really how he saw himself. But at the time he emerged, the state of the country in terms of race was at its lowest, one of its lowest levels in American history. It's also often called the nadir of race relations because of the number of lynchings and segregation and the rise of disfranchisement across the South by 1990% of African descended people in the former Confederacy could not vote. Lynching reaches an all-time high in 1896. There's sort of these horrendous issues of and instances of anti-Black racial violence and Trotter's criticism and many Black people's criticism of Washington at the time was that as somebody who had or proclaimed to have the ear of everybody from Andrew Carnegie to William McKinley to Theodore Roosevelt, for somebody who was so connected to those seats of power in the country, he never spoke publicly to say lynching is wrong. And he never spoke publicly to say um, segregation is wrong. He never spoke publicly to say that um, the right to vote was fundamental for um, all men, according to the 15th Amendment. W.E.B. Du Bois is born in 1868 in Massachusetts, grows up not particularly well off in a town called Great Barrington. Pretty quickly, it becomes clear is sort of this intellectual genius. Very, very, very smart. Can't afford college. The town of Great Barrington pays for him to attend a college called Fisk. Eventually went on to Harvard and got the first PhD at Harvard University in history. So Du Bois, logically in everyone's mind, and the, in the popular consciousness, is posed as being different than Booker T. Washington. And um, one of the things I wanted to do with the book was show that, yes, they were different in terms of their backgrounds and in terms of what they ultimately wanted. You know, uh, Du Bois was definitely not somebody who would ever say, you know, Black people should forgo higher education, which was something that Washington stated. Washington wanted industrial education. But the two men were similar in the sense that there's all of this, these letters between Du Bois and Washington. Du Bois was about to get a position at Tuskegee before he got a position at uh, his the school where he taught, which was Atlanta University, they aren't that far apart. What really pushed Du Bois um, and many African Americans to question Booker T. Washington was Booker T. Washington's work behind the scenes to undermine alternative ways of Black politics. So Booker T. Washington was terrified of dissent uh, publicly. He would do anything he could to shut down and push people to um, not fund, for instance, black newspapers that disagree with his program. He did not like publicizing lynchings and horrible racial violence. He didn't criticize um, white politicians who were, you know, in many cases, overseeing very violent in instances of anti-black violence across the South. Um, in the book, I look at, you know, a specific moment in 1902 in Boston where Booker T. Washington personally intervened to have a black man extradited from Massachusetts to North Carolina um, after the black man was accused of setting a barn on fire. And that man, Trotter, you know, works to get that black man kept in Massachusetts. And instead, Booker T. Washington phones in and basically says no. And so the black man is taken and put on trial in a sham trial and dies in you know, solitary confinement. So there's there's one of the things Trotter was pointing out was that there were consequences to Washington's rhetoric. It wasn't just a matter of opinion, right? That this had a, a very big effect given the tensions of the times on black people's lives, on livelihoods, on the ways that um, black communities um, could defend themselves or couldn't defend themselves. Um, and Du Bois was somebody who privately had these feelings about Washington, 
but didn't necessarily express them publicly until after the bus and riot, which I get into. And so one of the things I really wanted to show in the book was that when we as historians talked about this moment in history, which is that, well, it's Du Bois and it's Washington and really, you know, which idea is better. And really, that's pretty simplistic way of looking at a moment when it's not which is better, it's what are Black people and communities saying about this moment. And one of the pleasures of doing the research for the book was looking at all of the ways in which Black communities, for the most part, were critical of Booker T. Washington and that criticism was being squelched. And Trotter arrives at a moment where he turns, you know, his newspaper into basically the voice of those people and then uses that voice to then foment protests against racism and discrimination in the North. It's time for a break. This is Roy Brooks with the title track from the 1970 release, The Free Slave. More on Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Monroe Trotter when Interchange returns. Stay with us. Interchange on WFHB, our show is Mr. Trotter, the President, and the Klan, with author Kerry Greenwich, who has written The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotter, published by Livewright. In this segment, the Harvard man can't find work, so he starts his own newspaper. Then we turn to the way the Tuskegee machine worked to silence black protest and dissent. more readily place Trotter alongside Du Bois if we just look at their biographies, right? Or look mm-hmm. at their, their education and see where they might have seemed like more natural allies than someone like Washington, who definitely was uh, from a different, uh, different place entirely. Trotter and Du Bois were friends and pretty close. They met um, while well, at Harvard. And um, Du Bois, you know, when he writes about his experiences at Harvard, Du Bois talks about how Trotter did at Harvard what Du Bois could never do. So Du Bois was kind of shy and very bookish and kind of, as he said, he was of Harvard, but not in it. Like, so he just went to his classes and then left and tried to get off the campus as much as possible. Whereas Trotter was very charismatic. 
Um, he was very respected by his particular class. He graduated third in his class. He um, also did, you know, civil rights work outside of class. And so Trotter and Du Bois hung around the same people. They knew the same people. I, I kind of make it akin to like people you went to college with who you then see throughout your life um, it, professionally, but then you, you kind of hang out and, and you know, your, your spouses are friends, that type of thing. And what really split them apart from one another was the Niagara Movement in 1905. And the two of them went to, into that movement together, spearheading this, what was supposed to be this national organization that was going to support and uphold through um, protests and legislation, the reconstruction amendments. And Trotter, completely given his personality, sabotages that movement because Trotter was jealous of other members of it and because Trotter had legitimate, albeit sort of very tantrumy, as he sort of throws a tantrum because he does not like the fact that members of the Niagara movement were allied with the Republican governor of Massachusetts. And mm-hmm. Trotter was was very adamant that black people need to be politically independent. And so um, when one of the members of the Boston branch of the Niagara movement goes to help the Republican governor get reelected, Trotter throws a fit and basically stops supporting the Niagara movement. And Du Bois has a similar relationship to other activists in which Du Bois was often somebody who, as his career went on, would get mad at people, would not like to share the spotlight, and then would just shun that person. Trotter really does this first, and Du Bois after that, the two men have this very um, contentious relationship. It's one of those relationships that I think was mired by both men's egos, by Trotter being very difficult if he was out of the spotlight. And so a lot of their contentions with each other were based on that as well as their ideological differences. What's the reason for Trotter to start a newspaper then? He's he's um, he's graduated uh, from college. Does, does he begin a paper right out, right out of the gate or is he, is he struggling to figure out what to do with himself? Um, when he graduated third in his class, and this is at a time to be very clear that was how um, college, particularly Harvard, worked at the time was that the class had a rank. And so when people graduated from Harvard, you basically were then recruited by these big companies. The world was basically your, your oyster and you were recruited and went and you applied for these jobs and you got those jobs simply by being a Harvard man. That's where the, where the term Harvard man comes from. Um, and Trotter tra- graduates third in his class and he could not get a job anywhere, even though his father was pretty wealthy and even though his fa- father who had passed away had all these connections in but we now think of as industrial America, you know, he can't find a job that is going to pay him what a Harvard man was being paid at the time. He uh, was offered one job, and that was at a segregated high school in um, Washington, D.C., which was a perfectly fine job. And many black Harvard graduates taught at that school called the Dunbar School. Uh, but Trotter was raised not to sort of give in to segregation. And he argued this was segregation at its worst. And so he would not teach in a segregated environment uh, for unequal pay. And so he opened up his own um, real estate business. And actually, it was phenomenally successful in that the real estate business he opened up did real estate deals between Black people who were moving out of Boston and Jewish immigrants who were moving into Boston. And neither of those groups could find <laughs> banks to facilitate them buying purchasing pro- property in Boston. So he was that facilitator, made a lot of money doing that, um, but then began to notice that he was amongst a crowd of Black people who were part of this emerging Black upper class. And yet, you know, he couldn't move out of New England if he wanted to be able to vote. Um, He couldn't buy a property outside of uh, New England or New York without having to worry about, you know, facing lynch mobs. And this is, you know, not hyperbole. He couldn't be sure that he could invest in property in certain banks. So certain banks were starting to deny black depositors the right to deposit stuff. So he's going through all of this stuff and he's looking around and yet he's being told by Booker T. Washington and Booker T. Washington 
Washington supporters and people in Tuskegee that this is not a problem, right? That this is the fault of black people not having enough education. If they have enough education, um, you know, then the world will open up for them. And he's saying, you know, you know, I have a Harvard degree, third in my class, and I can't get a job, then something's, something's wrong, right? And so he starts a newspaper out of that. He also started it because he hears Booker T. Washington creates something called the National Negro Business League in Boston. And that league, you know, Booker T. Washington is encouraging black people just to open a business. And if they open a business, you know, all this other civil rights stuff will fall into line. And Trotter's argument is, well, what do you do if banks aren't giving you loans to start your business, right? Um, It's not going to work. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Kerry Greenwich, author of Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotter. In what follows, newspaper man and agitator Monroe Trotter is jailed and then sued by Booker T. Washington in an attempt to stifle dissent over racial conservatism and political dealing. Nineteen oh one, he started the uh, the um, Guardian newspaper and basically argues that the job of the press was to hold people in power accountable, even if those people were was somebody like a Booker T. Washington. And so he started to expose a lot of the ways in which Tuskegee, and it was called the Tuskegee machine, was buying out black newspapers, um, the way that Booker T. Washington was stifling dissent. And so Trotter pointing out things like that pointing out the rise of lynching. So this is at a time when um, the mainstream press was actually not covering lynchings as much as they were in the past, um, with the argument that, according to Booker T. Washington, then it was just inciting more violence. So why report on anti-Black violence? And so Trotter, very skillfully using um, Black communities to report on the everyday violence that occurred um, in addition to lynching across the South. And so by the time you get to like within two years of the newspaper, The Guardian was um, extremely popular for the way that it talked to black communities and the way that it urged black communities to agitate, agitate, agitate against segregation, discrimination and, and lynching. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the ni- 1903, he's turning the newspaper into a vehicle for what he calls his Equal Suffrage League, which was going to um, use the press to get black people to create a national organization that would fight for restoration of the 14th and 15th Amendment. And, you know, by 1905, it's it's a vehicle that then leads to the Niagara Movement, which was a predecessor to the NAACP. Trotter begins to uh, see it as a um, as an, uh, a way to be active to bring things to light, but also to encourage other activism in a sense, you know, or to encourage his readers to agree that they could be agents in their lives, in politics, in their in their communities, that they didn't have to accept what anybody was saying that they mm-hmm. should or shouldn't do. One of the things, you know, points he makes throughout and you make throughout is he's not going to tell you what to do. He's just going to say, look what's going on here. And yeah. We're going we're gonna to have some rallies. Uh, you know, a big part of the book is just how great he is at creating these events to raise money, to raise awareness. Uh, that was pretty impressive as well. I'm glad you pointed that out. I mean, one of the things that always struck me about Trotter is that he never told people vote for this candidate except for one candidate, and that was President Woodrow Wilson. And then after that, he never did that again. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, um, he never said, you know, you have to vote for this person. He was saying that black people and communities need to decide how it was they wanted to live and um, to do that, they need to know what was actually happening, you know, politically, economically, and socially. And so the biggest claim to fame for the Guardian was it's his ability to rally masses of people 
to show um, what we would now call like civil disobedience using the newspaper. And again, this is before even widespread telephone use um, at the time. So it's pretty amazing. You know, we're having a rally in Boston Common so that Massachusetts will pass an anti-lynching bill um, show up at this time. And he'd get, you know, 300 people at the least, you know, a thousand people at the most, um, all black people. And then as the years went on, more white people joining the crowds to protest um, on behalf of these things. And that was really something that people hadn't seen before. Uh, so you mentioned the Niagara movement already as being a sort of precursor to the NAACP. Uh, the Niagara movement's uh, 29 men in particular, right? Du Bois uh, and Trotter being two of these. That's 1905. What was its intention? So the Niagara movement was created um, in part in response to the fact that you have this national, um, this equal suffrage league that Trotter starts that ends up spreading to other areas. There's one in New York. There's a branch in, uh, of course, all over New England, New York, uh, Philadelphia. And yet every time they try to have a mass movement to have people show up, Tuskegee and Booker T. Washington will interfere and, you know, urge people not to go. And so that was one of the reasons that they wanted to create the Niagara movement. The other reason is that in 1903, there's something called the Boston riot in which um, Trotter attempts to ask Booker T. Washington questions in Boston. There's a, a riot. Um, when that happens, Trotter was sued by Booker T. Washington in an attempt to get rid of the Guardian. And so there was really this idea that something had to be done with the fact that Tuskegee was stifling dissent. The Niagara movement emerged as that it wanted to be an entirely Black-led organization so that these Black communities could decide what this like civil rights national agenda should look like. Um, and they wanted to restore the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. And um, with the fight and argument between Du Bois and Trotter, by about 1909, the um, Niagara movement was defunct. At its height, the Niagara movement had branches in Atlanta, New York, um, New England, Ohio. Its biggest triumph was that it challenged successfully segregated cars in Virginia. That did not stick because eventually Virginia went back and reinstated a form of segregation. But it, it sort of had this initial success. Once the Niagara movement ended around 1908, 1909, the instances of racial violence increased. And one of those was a very brutal lynching in 1908 in Springfield, Illinois, ironically, the hometown or near where Abraham Lincoln was from. Mm -hmm. um, and in that riot, uh, the white townspeople basically you know, attacked the black townspeople, forced them out of the city of Springfield and rioted against sort of any black presence in the community. And so this was a moment um, when many white Northerners, for the first time, recognized that lynching was a problem because it occurred at, in a city that was supposed to be um, racially tolerant. Members don't get weary. Members don't get weary. Members don't get It's time for another break. This is the title track to Max Roach's 1968 release, Members Don't Get Weary, with vocals by Andy Bay. When we return, we'll hear about the massacre and white riot that was the springboard for the formation of the NAACP. Stay with us. Members don't get Keep your lamb trimmed and burned. 
Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is about the political agitation of race-first journalist William Monroe Trotter with author and scholar Kerry Greenwich. In this segment, we hear about the 1908 white riot in Springfield, Illinois, the land of Lincoln, which I assure you was not on the syllabus in my Illinois hometown school system. And we'll find out how this led to the formation of the NAACP. Yes, I said yes, we're going to set out the welcome table. When I work, when I work, when I work, yes, I just had a conversation with um, Walter Johnson not that long ago about his book, The Broken Heart of America. Oh, yeah. Wonderful book. And, yeah. And one of those, uh, you know, he just details an East St. Louis riot that is very oh, yeah. very similar to the Springfield riot, except, you know, one I think has more to do with labor. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, racist labor issues. Yeah. But the fact that, you know, the riot itself creates people who become refugees as they have nowhere to go. The city's turned over, basically, and people are, are forced to leave and, and murdered. And, and I was like, this is in my home state. Yeah, (laughs) I never never heard of it. Now, again, I'm not surprised that I haven't heard of it, but like 5,000 people participated in the riot, 2,000 refugees, uh, 19 or 20 people murdered that they're or killed that they're aware of. I mean, and I had never heard of it. Um, And there are too many of those that, you know, we don't hear of. And uh, so, again, it's why, you know, why I like Trotter so much is he seems like he's he's just not backing down from anything. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, when you, you bring up these happen all the time, I mean, one of the things even as research in the book was that. Trotter would do something and often I would then have to go back and say, well, why is he doing it? It has to be something that he's doing it for. It was usually some act of, you know, horrendous anti-black violence that occurred that nobody else except for a few small other people were covering. And then when he started to cover it, then, um, you know, other places would start to cover it as well. Uh, But he was very sort of this kind of constant barrage of violence was was definitely a theme that he saw as the, the reason why voting and political action and radical, you know, politics were so, so much needed. Necessary. Yeah. So why, why does Niagara turn into the NAACP? I mean, we can say why it fell apart, I suppose, also, because a big part of the book is Trotter's own personality, which is very, <laughs> as you say, very difficult. But why did an all-black organization, you know, all-black men, we should always point out exactly. that it's men doing these things also. Why, how can that turn into a, a basically a white organization? So it's a good question. So the Niagara movement itself falls apart roughly by, you know, 1908, 1909. At the same time it's falling apart, there was the Springfield riot. And in response, a group of white philanthropists in New York, uh, Mary White Ovington, you know, a season, these are sort of reformers, um, mentioned at the beginning of our talk, you know, liberal New England people, a lot of those little types of people, they're shocked. They have a meeting called um, a conference on the status of the Negro in which they're like, they're like, okay, we're going to have this meeting in New York. We're going to figure out why it is that the Southern problem, as they called it, is seeping into the North. We're going to have a conference about it. And so that was the origins of what then became the NAACP is it was, it was called by white philanthropists. It met in New York. Um, at the time, the people who met there were really concerned with choosing the people who would be there. And Trotter initially was invited, as was Ida B. Wells Barnett, as was W.E.B. Du Bois. But Trotter quickly um, reveals that he and Ida B. Wells have a very, very different prescription for what they want this to look like, right? So if the white philanthropists are really want this to be, we're going to go investigate, we're going to um, then get a team of lawyers, both lawyers are going to then prosecute segregation, we're going to make a case for civil rights as a legal issue. So that, that was what originally the original NAACP was supposed to do and still, and still does and does it very well. You know, this isn't to disparage, disparage the organization for any means. Trotter's argument was that 
that was not sufficient, particularly um, if by the time it's created in 1909, by that time, everyone in charge of it were white people. All of those people were white Northerners. Majority of those people were white Northerners from either New York or New England. And the only black person asked to lead anything was Du Bois. And he's put in charge of the magazine called The Crisis. Um, and so Trotter and um, other black activists argument was that, you know, why are, do you not have black people who are activists in the room leading the charge and directing things? You know, we have black attorneys at the time who were fighting on the civil rights level. Why aren't they involved? And so that was a Trotter's and many black, his black supporters initial um, criticism. Trotter was also critical of the approach of the NAACP because it was focused on legal mechanisms of ending segregation and lynching and discrimination that it really didn't deal with kind of community level stuff. Um, and Trotter's argument was that to not do that was to ignore sort of black people themselves. And so by the time the NAACP is founded, Trotter's criticism of it, particularly in Boston, was that it was very allied with seeking out white liberal philanthropists and their money and getting them to support these legal initiatives, um, which were very much removed uh, then as they are now from kind of average people's lives. That was his major criticism of them. When we get to The Birth of a Nation, the film that came out in 1915, a sort of virulently racist film by D.W. Griffiths that's based on um, Southern propaganda by Thomas Dixon, Trotter's um, leadership in that movement against the film had a lot to do with the fact that the NAACP's initial approach to that film was not to protest it at all. Um, We kind of forget that. Their initial approach was, we're going to sponsor a series of lectures in which we have white um, people talk about reconstruction and black office holders who did good in the South. Mm -hmm. And we're then going to bankroll our own movie about Reconstruction was like there's like this crazy scheme to have like black um, people talk about like Frederick Douglass and stuff and that that would be a sufficient um, Uh critique. Trotter's argument was that the film itself was racist propaganda and was going to lead to a rise of the Klan. Of course, he turned out to be correct. That it in and of itself was something that needed to be um, censored at a time when many things were being censored by uh, the public and by governors at the time. Like it writes itself as a skit, right? The, the you'll produce a, a birth of a nation that has uh, black people in white face, uh, yes. you know, <laughs> playing playing the good black people, right, yes. and and the bad white people, you know, as as this kind of weird mirror, as I think you point out, or, or at least it seems to me, it's uh, kind of a, the NAACP at that point has more of a Booker Washington response to black people. Then you know, we can show that that black people are really good. Yes. Yeah, right. and not, exactly. not chicken stealing. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. And Trotter's argument was that there's, there is no good or bad light. There's no, there are no two sides to this. Right. This is created by somebody who was an admitted Klansman who wrote the books because he wanted to promote the Klan. That is what we need to be talking about. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is Mr. Trotter, the President, and the Klan with author Kerry Greenwich. We've been discussing the racist, birth-of-a-nation-loving, son-of-the-South president, Woodrow Wilson. How in the world did northern black intellectuals like Monroe Trotter and W.E.B. Du Bois support his candidacy? Yeah, let's talk about Wilson 
too, and 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 we'll have to back up just a hair, right? Uh, because mm-hmm. we we do have both uh, Du Bois and Trotter supporting Wilson, a son of the South, right? Uh, yes. Definitely a terrible person. Really. <laughs> yes. I mean, again, uh, the benefit of history gives us gives us this perspective. But you know, what caused Trotter and Du Bois both to say this guy seems like he's he's going to be okay? How did they come to believe he could do well by them rather yeah. than what he ended up doing? When Woodrow Wilson ran for president in 1912, he's a, he's a, he's a Democrat. At the time he was a political leader, but in New Jersey, but principally known for his work at um, Princeton University. So it's, it's hard for us to kind of imagine this, but Woodrow Wilson was known as being an administrator, a scholar, somebody who had turned around Princeton um, that was really failing and turned it around to create, you know, Princeton University in the early 20th century. So that was what Wilson was known for. And he was also known for somebody who, when he was governor of New Jersey, meeting with black voters at a time when that was very, very, very rare. The only other um, governor who had done that when um, he is running for office was uh, the governor McCall, who was the governor of Massachusetts. So this Trotter pointed to and Du Bois pointed to as this is the first time a, a governor is meeting with black people. He also um, met with black people at a time when there were lynchings that were occurring in New Jersey. And Woodrow Wilson, you know, is the only elected official to say, oh, lynching is a horrendous event. Um, at a time when the Republican Party had fallen out of favor, as a result of that, Woodrow Wilson came across in the context of the time as being somebody who was meeting with black people and talking to them in the North. And when Woodrow Wilson ran for president, he it's a monumental election in 1912 because for the first time he is the first Democratic um, presidential candidate to win and to win in states that were traditionally die-in-the-wool Republicans. So Massachusetts, I believe New York, Ohio, all of these Republican states, again, going back to what Republican and Democrat meant at the time. And so Woodrow Wilson, when he gets into office, you know, there was a lot of black northern support for him. And so he wins. And almost immediately, um, he uh, makes plans to segregate the federal government. And within the first year that he was president, installed into many of the federal offices, virulently um, racist politicians from Texas, Mississippi and Alabama and fires um, black people who had been working in the federal government, you know, some of whom had been working there for like four years for no other reason than, and I, I point this on the book, than that they were black. That was the only justification that was given was that they were Negroes and that uh, Woodrow Wilson did not want to preside over a mixed race uh, government. And so with that, Trotter immediately uh, gets together his independent political league, which had helped rally black voters around Wilson and demands a meeting with Woodrow Wilson Woodrow Wilson, to his credit, met with Trotter. But, um, you know, Woodrow Wilson was a Southerner. Woodrow Wilson was also somebody who really believed the at the time, which was a very popular belief, which was that segregation was not a bad thing, um, that it was something that was good for black people, and that if black people kind of just, again, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, eventually they would be at the level that they would be accepted by white people. And so he met with Trotter, which was a historic moment in and of itself. He basically, you know, just has this conversation where he says that, you know, segregation is only bad if black people think it's bad. The men leave, they come back again, have another meeting, and Woodrow Wilson completely, you know, loses it in, you know, typical early 20th century fashion and basically says, you know, I don't like your tone. I don't want you to to talk to me that way. You know, if you're going to have a representative, get another representative. And one of the things I point out with that incident in 1914 is that the point of it really for Trotter was not that he was going to change Woodrow Wilson's mind. Right. 
because, you know, let's face it, Trotter's not a, a fool. Like, um, it really was to show black people that you elect somebody to office with a lot of black support. And that person then enters office with completely denouncing black support and denigrating black people and instituting policies that harm black people in real time. Um, you as a voter, Trotter would argue, have the right to confront that person in office, right? as somebody who voted them into office. And so that was really his point of that. And you had a right to hold public elected officials accountable. Um, and so he does that immediately. You know, of course, the, the Southern press is really upset about it. Um, the Northern press as well, you know, what's going on. But for black people, this was really a turning point. You know, he's like cheered by black people. This is what turns the tide of opinion for him in um, outside of the country, in like Jamaica and Bahamas and black nations outside of the United States who were like, you know, here's somebody who's actually speaking and confronting an elected official about their racial policy. Like that's kind of the center of the book. It's really, uh, and I guess it's kind of the center of his success, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Trotter, in, in, although he's fairly influential for a long time, but uh, mm -hmm. it's really a, a moving moment. Um, you know, it's like Woodrow Wilson is comes to um, office as Lincoln. He's really Andrew Johnson. He's like wearing a mask. Yes, um, yes, yes. Now we gathered here on the universe at this time, this particular time, to listen to the 36 black notes of the piano. There's 36 black notes and 52 white notes. We don't mean to eliminate nothing, but we're gonna just hear the black notes at this time, if you don't mind. Blackness, B-L-A-C-K-N-U-S-S. It's time for our final break. This is Blackness by Roland Kirk, and yes, it too is the title track of his 1971 album. Stay with us as Monroe Trotter predicts the D.W. Griffith film The Birth of a Nation will lead to a Klan resurgence. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. In our final segment, Monroe Trotter predicts, correctly, a Klan resurgence. We then hear about the Tulsa Massacre of 1921 and the formation of the African Blood Brotherhood in 1919, which finds a place between David Walker's appeal to self-defense in 1829 and the armed resistance of the Black Panther Party in the 1960s. 
So, Birth of a Nation, uh, the very well-known film uh, about uh, the Klan by D.W. Griffith, uh, uh, a son of the South also. That, that film comes out in 1915. Obviously, people have spent so much time just talking about the brilliance of it as a film that we're, mm-hmm. we're kind of stuck with seeing it. It's such a complex response that, that people have had towards it. But what he does really well here also is, is again, you know, raise a ruckus, right? This is the key to be able to protest. You're stuck now. You voted a guy in that, that believes in this kind of stuff too. You know, what can we do to not see it? Or what can we do to really respond to it? It's the sad thing about it, I guess, also is just how promoted it was. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and yeah, Trotter talking about how, you know, people dressing up as the Klan and marching down Tremont Street in Boston right. on the Boston Carmen to promote the film, people taking out ads in newspapers that would like mimic pictures of lynchings, um, to get in like laugh and then get people to come to the movie. I mean, it's, it's, oh. it was a, you know, disgusting moment. And that was, that was part of his, his point, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And as you say already, it, it sparked a resurgence of the KKK, right? Yes. Um, the the um, resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan in 1915 is directly linked to the seeing of the Klan. The man who founded the new Klan in 1915 specifically said he was inspired to do so because he went to see uh, the showing of the Birth of a Nation multiple times in Atlanta. He realized he had to defend his race and Anglo-Saxon purity, and so he went um, and founded uh, the new clan in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Um, and the new clan, by the way, um, emerged at a time that was focused on African Americans, of course, but also focused on Jews, on anybody who was not white, Anglo-Saxon Protestant, so Catholics, um, big problem with, um, French Canadian and Catholic immigrants in New England who were moving into places like, so this was, this was like a, a terror group. And Trotter was really somebody who, who foresaw that that was what was going to happen. At the time, too, I think this is a period where the term is used, or maybe even a little before this, right? The, the new Negro is used at the mm-hmm. time. What, what is that? What's the new Negro? What what is that supposed to mean at this time? Okay, so the new Negro was a term that's coined and used, you know, multiple times throughout the late 19th century after the Civil War to emphasize that it's a possibility for black people to no longer adhere to uh, slavery, both legal slavery and, you know, mental slavery, and to become and forge their own identity, political, economic, and culturally. It's originally just identified with, um, like, the Harlem Renaissance, but it's really this idea that emerges during this time period. We think of Jack Johnson, who's um, boxing champion of the time period, if we think of um, you know, the rise of jazz and ragtime and all these things. And so Trotter was really somebody who believed um, that, you know, the new Negro had arrived after the Civil War. And it's really the 19 teens that that sort of spreads from the North throughout the country and really throughout the world. It's a time of, you know, where, where the sort of just black consciousness in um, the Caribbean and um, the United States and, and South America. Trotter really saw this protest against Birth of a Nation as, you know, this idea of the new Negro not sitting down and sort of allowing him or herself to be defined and categorized by white Americans. I think I had a book not too long ago. Is it uh, a biography of Elaine Locke? Is that right? Uh, oh, yep, yep, yep. Uh, new Negro. So, yep, and Elaine Locke takes this term and goes with it in 1925 when he writes The New Negro, um, uh, which is the book of sort of poetry and, and writings by black authors. I think you mentioned already uh, Caribbean presence in any way. Uh, you know, the one of the interesting things about this is, uh, again, I say this all the time. Uh, it's very hard to keep your histories straight. And yes. It's very hard to keep your geographies straight too. Like a lot of times. Um, so if you're, you know, I think you point out in the book, uh, I think during the NAACP chapter, you know, people, you know, white liberals concerned about Russian pogroms, uh, but not concerned about, you know, racist violence in 
Atlanta or anywhere, you know, just, just yeah. sort of having this kind of inability to see things happening at the same time as they're happening in a world that is ex- experiencing much of the same kinds of things, you know, capitalist, you know, mm-hmm. anti-labor activity all the time, mm-hmm. all over the world. And these things are happening for the other various reasons as well. But I know the names Marcus Garvey. I know Du Bois. I know Washington. Mm-hmm. It's hard sometimes to keep stitching them together. Like I had no idea Marcus Garvey was so like turned out to be in this place too. He's quite a strong presence in the world also. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is about black radical journalist and agitator Monroe Trotter, who, in the last phase of his life, made connections with West Indian radicals like Hubert Harrison and Marcus Garvey, and journalist Cyril Briggs, who founded the African Blood Brotherhood and advocated armed self-defense in response to the racial violence of the Red Summer of 1919. And Garvey has a place here in your book as well, and a a place in uh, Trotter's uh, experience in life also. This sort of milieu leads to another phase of, of Trotter's life, right? Yes. So by the by the end of by World War One, Trotter was has this resurgence, particularly amongst these young Caribbean um, migrants to the United States. So there's this huge surge of Caribbean migration to the United States uh, during and after World War One, um, specifically to New York City and to Massachusetts. And Trotter um, t- takes a shift in his his uh, beliefs and starts to ally himself with younger Caribbean radical thinkers. So the the socialist thinker and writer Hubert Harrison in Harlem. Um, Cyril V. Briggs, who's a Caribbean migrant, all of these migrants coming in who are slightly younger than he is, but who have grown up reading The Guardian and who are just fascinated by the fact that this man who's older than they are is talking about things such as, you know, workers' rights, you know, eight-hour workday, um, the notion that workers' protections on jobs, um, this whole resurgence or, or surgence of the revolution that occurs in Russia in 1917. And so Trotter is at the center of all of those things, and he partners to create something called Liberty League, which was designed with Hubert Harrison in Harlem to uh, fight for what they call colored world democracy. And that really meant, you know, against uh, colonialism and imperialism in the world and also self-determination for the colored peoples. And this is at a time during World War One when, you know, that's the, the rhetoric that's surrounding the Allied forces in World War One. So after that war, Trotter really emerges on the, on the world stage amongst disfranchised, colonized people in the Caribbean, um, Central South America. And when he emerges through that, one of the things he begins to do is is form coalitions with uh, someone like a Marcus Garvey, who has his Universal Negro Improvement Association, and with Black people who were starting to embrace, um, you know, either straight Marxism or you know socialism, communism, or you know Pan Africanism and Black nationalism. And Trotter really becomes somebody who never becomes one or the other. But he also was somebody who believed that those strands of radical thought could be used in civil rights because, as he said, kind of the, the party system in the United States was broken. He still urged black people to vote and he urged black people to vote on their long racial lines. But he believed that these new this new era was an era that held possibility for black liberation. By the early 1920s, with the resurgence of the Klan, one of the things that he sees happening is that a resurgence of of once again, violence against black people, particularly in Red Summer in 1919, where black people in uniform are attacked by white mobs. And so one of the things he points to is a need for black people to reclaim their histories, whether that be an African history or a American history or a Caribbean history, and that through that, they have the right to uh, bear arms and defend their communities. And so this is where he um, and Cyril Briggs 
uh, organized something called the African Blood Brotherhood, which is sort of this loosely loose group coalition of African-American people who want revolution for themselves and protection for their communities. And even though we know that the ABB was not particularly large, like it was didn't have like 100,000 members, it was frightening enough that it's um, monitored by the Bureau of Investigation, which eventually becomes the FBI. And it was blamed for the Tulsa riots in Oklahoma in 1921, in which members of the black community in Tulsa defended themselves with weapons. And there, we know that there was a African Blood Brotherhood branch in Tulsa. And so Trotter really emerges as kind of the face of this much more militant, much more um, international, global movement for black liberation. He's in the center of everything. It's one of it's, it's ridiculous. I had no idea yes. who he was. Now, you mentioned Tulsa there. That's the Greenwood district in Tulsa that was uh, basically firebombed also, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, so the, the justification for the firebombing was that uh, uh, black people defended themselves? Yes. The uh, National Guard was called in in that case. Um, Greenwood, Greenwood neighborhood in uh, Tulsa was a very, uh, uh, very much a thriving neighborhood in the city of Tulsa, which saw a black migration there from to escape, ironically, the violence in the South. Right. Oklahoma was considered kind of this, this refuge. And then over the years, um, sort of um, deteriorated into sort of this, this bastion of sort of white resistance to black progress. And so um, 1921, um, there's a co- was a coordinated effort. We, we now know we between the um, white officials, federal officials, and the white community to attack this community in Greenwood. And it's part of what's happening now with kind of this reckoning surrounding um, the neighborhood. But at the time, we know that the response to the sort of constant increasing violence against that community was that they formed a branch of the ABB, um, which Trotter um, uh, helped to found, and they urged black men to carry weapons to protect their community from harassment. And the then backlash against that was that the black community then should be um, in insurrection and should be attacked by the um, the National Guard. Hmm, it's kind of a pre-Panther move to, to carry weapons. Yes, right. And one of the things, you know, that makes the complicated thing is that Trotter was somebody who pointed out that black men had fought in um, all the wars in the country, but specifically in the Civil War, and that therefore they had earned the right to sort of bear arms and protect their communities. Everybody wants happiness. That's our show. We'll close with Freedom Death Dance off of Eugene McDaniel's 1971 album, Headless Heroes of the Apocalypse. No amount of dancing is going to make us free. Thanks to Carrie Greenwich for joining us to discuss her book, Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotter, published by Libright. But I've really got news for you. There's no amount of dancing we can do that will ban the bomb. Be the starving children, bring justice and equality to you and me. You'll find this show podcast at our website, wfhb.org, as well as links to related content and conversations. You can also find it on iTunes, PRX, and other podcasting services. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Kate Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. The Jazz Menagerie is next. Thanks for listening. Gather the murders and be Around breath of life. 
this could be your only chance. 